Morena, Fana. Um, we're into our second part on Jonah this week, and um, yeah, we kind of left you in a very precarious position. If you were here last week, poor old Jonah had gotten swallowed by a whale, um, and I kind of explained last week that being inside a whale was not pleasant, okay? Um, it was miserable to be in there, but yet chapter 2 kind of highlights what... Jonah was doing inside a whale. Here it is, going from verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. Your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet... I will look again toward the holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounding me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The root, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. Uh, down the earth beneath barred me, from, in, barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And then there's this great line to finish off chapter 2, after all that depth of emotion, of praise, of real, you know, wholehearted um, emotion... It ends with this, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That doesn't sound very cool, does it? Has anyone been vomited out by a fish before? Please share with us your experience. That's not got to be a nice thing. And, and the thing is, when we think about Jonah inside the whale, and I shared this last week, but I'll share it again this week, is that we think of him as being quite pleasant in there. But he wasn't. And what we saw from last was that God not only cares for all people, not only can and will use you or will use anyone, and not only does he work through even the biggest failures you think or the biggest failure you think you are, God is also beyond all our fears. This scene of Pinocchio where Geppetto is sitting inside a whale writing letters. He's got his clothes hung up on a little raft there and there's a little kettle in the corner. That's not Jonah's experience. It would have been cool, but he was in the stomach of a whale. If he was vomited out, he was in the tummy and there's a lot of gastric acids and juices in there and dead fish slowly being digested. When he would have been thrown out, vomited on the shore. His skin would have changed colour in certain places. Uh, he'd lucky to have still his hair on his head and he would have smelt rather unpleasant. This was not a pretty scene. And yet, in the midst of all this, he is praising God from inside a fish. Now, if there's ever a worse time in your life, 
If you think your life is doing really bad, I'll bet you it can't be as bad as being slowly digested inside a fish. You'd almost rather drown, right? You'd almost rather some other way to go than being inside and being slowly digested. And yet in the midst of that, he is praising God. I'm not sure that's the first thing I'd be thinking of when I'm inside a fish, slowly being digested. I don't know, maybe you guys are different to me. I'd be screaming. I'd be trying to claw my way out. I'd be thinking of uh, MacGyver and is there uh, any wire or something that I can use to get out of this thing? But he instead is praising God from inside a fish. In uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly praise his name. I love how Paul, well, actually, it's not Paul really, but the author of Hebrews uses this word sacrifice. I mean, that's something that maybe we Christians on a Sunday morning might want to remember. That praising God is a sacrifice. It's not the songs that we want, right? It's not whether or not we like who's preaching up front or whether we like the lighting or the comfort of the chairs. It is a sacrifice. And in the midst of what was probably was his worst moment in his whole life, Jonah is praising God. pretty strong case there, eh? I can't tell you how many times I've been a worship leader for 10 years, I've been uh, pastoring in three different countries on two different continents, and it's the same. Culturally, it doesn't, it crosses everything. Churchgoers always have an issue with what music they want to hear or not, or how the service is set up, or who's the preacher or not the preacher. It's, it's, it's something that unites us all, Christians. I've not been in a church where I've not heard the words, can we not do that again? Or I really didn't like that. Or I don't like the way he does this or she does that. This is a time of sacrifice. When people tell me, why should I go to church on a Sunday? I tell them because that's the one time a week you can sacrifice your time for God. Not for me, not for that City Baptist Church for God. It's the one time where you've got to force yourself to get up and believe me, this morning in particular with the day that's out there and I spent a good portion of yesterday doing a driveway and my body really didn't want to get out of bed this morning but we don't do it because we have to. We don't do it because it's the tradition. We don't do it to please Rob or to please the church or please our partners or to be a good example for our children we do it as a sacrifice to God. But not only is he praising God, he assumes also that he will be saved. This is an extraordinary thing, right? If you're in a fish, how can you even assume God's going to save you? Maybe there's the arrogance of Jonah thinking, well, he's called me to do something. And he's going to make me do it anyway, so I'm going to assume that he's going to save me. I don't think he would have thought that. I think in this moment, he assumes that whatever's going to happen, it's going to be for God's glory. 
And sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? Even in the midst of all the struggles that we face, all the things that are happening in our lives today especially, we must assume that God will work with us through this. Amen? Even in the belly of a fish, he's assuming God's going to do his thing. Even at the point where you think you're done, Jonah, you're gone. In fact, he was thinking that when you read through chapter 2, he was thinking that when he was in the waters, the seaweed was wrapping around his neck, he was going to drown. And then, hey, look, I'm saved, the fish ate me. I've gone from bad to worse. But he assumes God is going to do something here. We need to hold on to that. God can work through anything, even when you're stuck in the belly of a fish. All the more so. Because you know what? The next coming months are going to be difficult for all of us. It's going to be difficult because as much as we will go into a, a red light situation, we're going to see a lot of our friends, family, ourselves, most probably being infected with this virus. We're going to see a lot happening around us. We have to assume that God will help us and work with us through this. We need to hold on to that truth. We have... And just as Jonah held on tightly to that hope when he was in the belly of a fish, we need to hold on to that as well. Going on in Jonah chapter 3, he's thrown out of this fish, he's saved. He's like, yes, <laughs> I stink and I'm a bit discolored and my hair's most probably falling out. But hey, I'm alive on a dry beard. Thank God. And God just like, almost like without blinking goes right back to where he was before this all happened. And he says to him, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, Jonah... You've learnt, right? Now I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim to it the message I gave you, and go. So it's really fascinating that God doesn't stop. It's not like, oh, you've learned a lesson now, I'll move on to somebody else. No, he's gone right back to the original plan. Okay, that was a bit of a detour, Jonah. You've needed to learn this. Now let's get back to the plan. I think Jonah, I don't know, if I were Jonah and I'm laying on that beautiful beach having survived the sun and the warmth and just thinking, oh, thank God I'm alive. I don't know, the last thing I would think is go back to that, that crazy city of Nineveh with all those people that are hell-bent on killing me and to go preach some message of hell and damnation to them. I, I'm not thinking that. I'm just appreciating the fact that I'm alive. But God's got other plans for Jonah. Hey, now that you've learned that, there's no way you can run. I need you. I'm going to send you back to Nineveh. And this is the second part that we see about God. He's not only beyond our fears, but he's also patient. When he has a plan, there might be some detours around it. There might be some curves that we've got to go around. Maybe have to stop and pause for a moment. But his plan is his plan. And he'll patiently wait for us. He'll patiently work with us. He'll patiently, patiently work through us. But when he's laid out his plan, he's laid out his plan. You know, one of the interesting things I found 
when I first came to Hutt City, which actually this month, six years ago, was the first time I preached here right before you guys voted for me as your new senior pastor six years ago. And at that point, there was this clarity about why God put us where we are, why we're on high street, this idea of a hub, this vision of a hub they had. And they moved away eight years previous to when I came from Periri Street, which was a lovely leafy suburb in a lovely, really cool looking building, a really nice suburban area. They left that to come here with a building that had quite a lot of problems and still has a lot of problems. <laughs> and for eight years, they had originally met in the cinema over here to our right. They came in there, I think that fit about 120, 140 people in there, and they filled that up within the first few months. They couldn't meet there anymore because they'd filled it up completely. So then they decided to go in the two cinemas on the other side. But because of the cost of removing that wall was too prohibitive, they cut out a hole at the front. So imagine from that pole where the camera is right there to here was open and the rest there was a wall down the middle. And fascinatingly enough, from the front you could see two congregations. Actually, it looked like one, but if you're on one side, you couldn't see the other side. And temporarily they put that in place. And that temporarily lasted, what, six years? And I remember the elders and saying and hearing them say, God's plan is still in place. There is a reason why he brought us here. Now there's all these full stops sometimes or pauses sometimes or we've got to sort things out with each other. Yep, all those might stop, may rearrange, may do, may... Th but at the end of the day, God's plan stands firm for us as a church. Now, over time, or since then, we've been able to come into one place where we, if you look around, you can see each other. Remember the first time someone kind of looked at someone and thought, I didn't know you came to this church. There's this idea that, no, we're all back in. So this was, this was monumental for us. And then getting downstairs sorted out. That was monumental for us. Now, using almost every space this building has been monumental for us. We're just experiencing a, a, an ounce, a touch of what the plan is for us here. It may look like it ain't going to happen. It may look like it's far off. But God's plan stays. What he gave us 14, 15 years ago, remains valid today. And you might have read my email this week. And the challenge is, how do we become the hub that God called us to be? So God is patient. He will work with us. And for him, a year or 10 makes no difference. Now, if you're like me, I'm what they call an activator. I like to get things going right away. And if you're telling me, let's start this project, I'm telling you to start it right now. Don't want to wait. Anyone like that? If you know you need to do something, let's do it now. No, just having to have meetings and talk through it and strategy and all this and that. You know, I'm just sitting there biding my time. I just want to get it going. Let's get it going. Or sometimes 
times we need to wait and be as patient as God is. But also other times we do need to action things. In this case, God is reactioning Jonah. Get back to Nineveh. Get back to what I called you to do. Okay? Going on in verses 3 to 4. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be alone. That's a great evangelical message right there, isn't it? I mean, take a look at that for a moment. 40 more days and Nineveh... You know, I... I've told this story a while back, I'll tell you again. When I was living in DC, we were first married, and I got a job through the Australian tourism industry um, a, a department there in Washington, DC. So I was literally right in, right in a place called Farragut Square, which is about a block away from the White House, in this office, and in Farragut Square, it's just busy as all get out. At lunchtime, everybody's out. And so you'd go out, you'd grab food and whatever, and you'd go back to your office. And I was downstairs one day, and I'm walking across the street, and there's a guy on a loudspeaker telling the world that they're all going to hell if they do not confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness. You know, in that moment, I don't know how some of you feel, but sometimes some of you feel like, in that moment, I'm a Christian, but not really, right? Like, I don't know this person. That is until on that overhead speaker, I heard this word call out, hey, Rob! Rob Petrini, how are you? And I turned around, and it was Joel. It was a guy from our church. And in that moment, I really wanted to die, right? I was like, oh my goodness. Come over! And he's still speaking through this thing, right? Come over here, baby! You can help me! I'm like, no, I don't want to be anywhere near you. <laughs> but, you know, we, we kind of look at that and think, oh, how does that work? Well, here's Jonah <laughs> screaming to the city, 40 days, and Nineveh will be no more. How do you think these guys would react? Now, you've got to remember that the Assyrian Empire, which their capital was Nineveh, these guys were rotten people. Historians call them the Nazis of the ancient world. They saw their own ethnicity, their own culture as being above everybody else's. And they destroyed anyone who was below them. And it's not like the Nazis that lasted, what, 10, 20 years or whatever it is. These guys lasted for centuries. Nobody liked them. And I shared the story last week when Alexander the Great was going through, you know, that part of, of the Middle East, going towards India. His doctor was documenting this journey of theirs and their conquests. And at one stage, he documents that they arrived to this, you know, this, this arid desert area where um, there's some ruins and sand dunes have covered most of these ruins. And it must have been a great city, he said once upon a time. And he, this is only a few, th a few hundred years later. What he didn't realize is that he was passing through what was once the great city of Nineveh. Their enemies destroyed it, razed it to the ground. That was how much they were disliked by, these pe by the people around them, how much people hated them, and the kind of damage they did. 
and he's going through this town preaching that. If you went to Berlin in 1941 and did that, what do you think would happen to you? <laughs> when it got to the king, the king of, of the Assyrians, when this message got to him, you know how he reacted? He reacted like this. Just mentioning how forgiving our God is. He rose from his throne, number one. Number two, he took off his royal robes. Number three, he covered himself in sackcloth. And number four, he sat in the dust. What a response. Sorry, Jonah hasn't given us the greatest evangelical message anyone could give to anything. But that's the best response I've ever heard. He heard the message from Jonah, it reached his ears, and immediately he rose from his th throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself, but he didn't just stop there. He then did this. He asked everyone to start fasting. He made a decree, it wasn't just humans, animals as well weren't allowed to eat. Everyone needs to fast. And then the next thing he said, everyone needs to repent. He makes a proclamation. Everyone, including the animals, are covered in sackcloth. I imagine the donkeys are thinking, what are these humans up to now? They're not letting me eat and they're dressing me in all rubbish clothes. What's going on? But he calls them to fasting and then he recalls them. I mean, we, we sometimes get that mixed up, don't we? Repentance happens and then we fast. The fasting happens first. The acknowledgement that there's something wrong. And then the repentance happens. Everyone covered in sackcloth. Then he calls everyone to prayer. And he calls everyone to call on urgently this God. Because let's make this clear that the Assyrians have their own gods, right? Jonah comes in and proclaims that the God has an issue with you. So he calls on everyone now to pray. Then he calls them to action. They need to give up all their evil ways which for the Syrians was quite a lot. They've got to give it all up. There's action involved. And then lastly, he calls out for hope. Maybe God will relent and have compassion. That's actually a good five-step process there, right? And who teaches us that? The Assyrians. The Nazis of the ancient world teach us what a good five-step process is to turning ourselves around. Fasting, repentance, prayer, then action. It's not just, because sometimes we Christians will stop at the prayer part, right? We'll stop and we'll say, yeah, I've repented, I'm done, and go about our regular business. But actually, there's action involved here. Change your ways. And lastly, hope. Maybe God will relent. And that's where we see an amazing God who's not only beyond all our fears, is not only patient, but he is forgiving, even to the worst of the worst. Again, the book of Jonah stands out a mile in the Old Testament to me, because everyone who tells me how bad this God is, or how evil this God is, or God's, you know, kind of flippant with lives and all that, I send them straight to Jonah and say, here's another picture of God. I won't give you a New Testament example. I'll give you an Old Testament example. In Jonah, he is patient, 
He is forgiving and He is caring about all peoples. And I think sometimes we might forget that. I think sometimes we, as in us, forget that. He is forgiving. It's interesting. In the New Testament, when Jonah is referred to, Jesus basically says to the Jews who should know better, he makes this comment in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And he's telling them, you think you know what it means to follow God, but you're missing it. And those ancient peoples that you look down upon now, who are basically the dust of the earth now, because that's all that's left of them, they will be the ones to stand up against you at the time of judgment. Because when Jonah came and preached, they repented. They heard and they acted. It's a tough word. It's a really tough word. The book of Jonah is a fascinating book and it deserves a whole lot more than just two weeks. But there are some honest challenges you can take out of this. God is beyond all your fears. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. He will with you through this. And you may not see it till you get to the other side. But there is a promise there. And no matter how badly you think you've stuffed up, which I'd imagine Jonah felt when that seaweed was wrapping around his neck and the waves were crashing on him. He's out in the middle of the ocean. No hope of survival. No matter how much you think you're a screw-up, God wants to and will use you. And lastly, not only is he patient, but he is also forgiving. There is not a sin that he will not forgive. If you think you're bad, compare yourself to the Assyrians. Most of us do today, right? When we think of a bad person, who do we think of? Think of a bad, the worst person of the 20th century. Hitler. I mean, there's only a handful that we can think of, right? There would be maybe more. But usually he's in the top three that we would think of. And God is saying that even he can have forgiveness which is really hard for us to really understand. But if you think you're not good enough, think again. God can and will forgive. It's interesting. It's only 30 years after Jonah has preached to Nineveh that the Assyrians will wipe Israel from the map. 
only 30 years after this message. In fact, two books later in the book of Nahum, Nahum predicts the ultimate fall of the Assyrian Empire, that they will turn to dust. And only a few hundred years later, the doctor of Alexander the Great will pass through that city or that town and all there will be is sand dunes and ruins and they won't even know the name of the place. But only 30 years after this message, the Ninevites or the Assyrians will attack Israel and wipe it, which today we still wonder where those 10 tribes are. But that doesn't matter. You repent, God will honour and forgive you. You turn to him, he will look. When you are stuck in the belly of a fish, when you are at the end of your rope, God will still work in your space, in your place, and work with you through it. And that's the book. Craziness of the Old Testament, I find it as a book of hope. Even though Jonah gets his own little ruffled feathers because the Assyrians aren't destroyed by God, but that God does forgive them, it is a book of hope that God can work through anything, even the mess of our own lives, even the mess of our own society. Amen? I'm going to ask our music team to come up. Our last song. You got it, buddy. Be our last song. And before you go after, I've got a bit of an announcement to make. Um, but, um, yeah, let's stand and worship the Lord together.